This is the Fedora Chronicles Network. This is the Fedora Chronicles radio show number 63, part one of an interview with Cass McGann, owner and operator of Reconstructing History. We talk about her background in the realm of vintage clothing pattern reproductions, her favorite and least favorite fabric, and a series of events that led to her starting her own business. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Um. Well, well, Cass McGann, now that we finally got the the, uh, the audio recorder to actually oh, good. record, uh, I, I just want to introduce you to our, our listeners here on the Fedora Chronicles radio show. Um, first of all, how, how, how do we know you um, from, uh, uh, from the internet? And tell us a little bit about your background before getting into uh, reconstructing history. Sure. Um, well... You probably know me from Reconstructing History because I'm a costume historian and one of the periods that I am most enthusiastic about is the early 20th century. So uh, the Fedora Chronicles and I are, are friends <laughs> because we dress alike. Yeah. And, um, and I'm a, a very big proponent of uh, tailoring and this not quite yet lost art of making one's clothing fit oneself rather than forcing oneself to fit into clothes. Um, and I can be quite evangelical about that. <laughs> Please, this is this is your show. E this is my show. Oh, no. <laughs> Stand back. <laughs> Evangelize, you know. Do you have three hours? Um. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, we can do three shows. I mean, yeah, can, right. <laughs> you might have to. Well, because uh, um, the thing is, is it I mean, right off right out of the gate. Um, yeah. like Jerry Maguire, you had me at hello. Um, cause <laughs> I, I have a huge problem shopping for clothes because, uh, well, because I'm, I'm, I'm me and mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, I, I just don't like the, the, the current men's fashion trends and, yeah. I, and I haven't, I, and there was, I don't think there was ever a point in my life where it's like, I have to dress like everybody else. Yeah. Everything that I bought is trying, it's either retro or or the authentic vintage. What is it about modern clothes with you that you don't like? Well, for me, I mean, I grew up as, I, I was a garment worker's daughter. So I was kind of ruined at a young age. <laughs> <laughs> ruined or I, saved? You know, my mom, my mom worked for a factory that did a lot of work for Saks Fifth Avenue and Bloomingdale's and these high-end New York stores. So it was... I was kind of indoctrinated in what good quality clothing looked like. And of course, those garment factories are gone now. And the, the clothing, you know, you can go to Saks Fifth Avenue and Bloomingdale's and still not get quality clothing, even though you're paying a lot of money for it. Um, but I kind of got indoctrinated. Like my parents are, are, are much older than most people's parents. My, my parents had me when they were in their late 30s, early 40s. So... Um, I grew up with that, you know, all of my dad's suits were a certain way and he had hats and, you know, my mom had tailored clothing and it's, my parents were never wealthy, but they would have their suits remade as 
fashions changed. I remember my father having um, lapels recut because skinny lapels came in. So, and here's this, you know, 60 year old man caring about the width of his lapels. It was at the time I was like, well, what does it matter? But he liked skinny lapels. And I was like, I'll, yeah, we'll just go take this to the tailor and have this recut. And the idea of having buying something that's an investment, um, as opposed to what we do nowadays, which we just buy something and we wear it for six months and it either falls apart or it's so hideously out of fashion by the end of those six months, we never want to see it again. It's an embarrassment to us. Um, but the bottom line is, is not about, I mean, I'm, if you want to wear the crazy cutting edge fashion, I fully encourage you to do that. But when you're a normal person, I would rather throw money at one really good suit that you can remake and restyle and, and have for 20 years than something frivolous. Something frivolous should be cheap. It shouldn't be. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Cause, yeah. um, I, I was at the, uh, the mall and I, 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 I hate to admit this and, uh, <laughs> I'm um, shocked. <laughs> My tears running down my eyes as I was like, like hello, my name is Eric and I'm a retrocentric. And I was last time I was at the mall was a week ago. <laughs> it was awful. I couldn't believe it. And there's there's uh, with maybe maybe a small exception of maybe Banana Republic. Yeah. Uh, there was there's no place for me there. Mm -hmm. There's no real place for me that is uh, buying something. I mean, like uh, with the exception of slacks and dress shirts. Mm -hmm. There's really yeah. nothing out there that is that's for me, and yeah. there is this new franchise that is springing up, which is gobbling up half of Sears here and there. I think it's called Primark, mm -hmm. and I was like intrigued because of the of the neon sign, and I'm thinking, "Ooh, what's that?" Mm -hmm. And it was like nothing but it's it's like it's like the IKEA for hipster clothes. Yeah, and I was just like, "Oh, crushed." So. The question that I have for you, and mm -hmm. this is this is really interesting. What is good quality clothes? Well, I think there are two things involved. Number one, you can't make good quality clothes out of crappy material. You have to start with good materials. Like any, if you're building a building, if you don't use the right kind of building materials, your building falls apart. And that's very true of clothing. So I'm a huge proponent of wool. I think wool is is glorious. And people, oh, it's so itchy and scratchy and I can't wear wool. I'm allergic to it. No, 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 you're not. <laughs> very, very few people are allergic to wool. Can you pet a sheep? Then you're not <laughs> allergic to wool. Um, and also, I mean, I have wool I would wear as underwear. I mean, honest to God, it wool can be so wonderful. I mean, cashmere is wool. You know, do you, oh, I'm... Cashmere is itchy. No, cashmere isn't itchy. It's the most wonderful thing on earth, and you just shut your foul mouth. You know? Yep, yep, yes. Um, but wool, I mean, and wool is amazing. Like wool is, tropical weight wool is cooler in the summertime than anything else I have ever worn because it breathes. Yeah. And it's cool to the touch. And then you have um, wools, like this time of year, if people complain about, oh, my, my feet are cold. 
Um, oh, somebody said to me the other day, I was like, it was 60 degrees outside and my feet were cold. And I'm like, why are my feet cold when it was 30 yesterday and my feet weren't cold? And they said, oh, probably your feet are, my, your feet are sweating. I'm like, no, I'm wearing wool socks. If my feet sweat, my, the, my foot temperature actually goes up because wool, and this is no, no exaggeration. You can go look it up in a science textbook. Wool is the only fiber that if it gets wet, it actually increases in temperature. Yes. I had a friend do the experiment in, in a college um, science class. And it's amazing. You would, you would so, it sounds so illogical. But if you wet wool, the temperature actually increases. And I don't know why. <laughs> science. <laughs> science. It has something to do with the air pockets between the, the hairs. Yeah. But, um, but so, so to get back to your question, which I, I do remember what it was. <laughs> Good, good tailoring, good clothing construction starts with good materials. And, and not that I'm discounting silk. Silk is wonderful. And I could do like a half an hour on silk alone. But good materials have to be at the basis of good clothing construction. And then it's construction, then it's um, not just running something up on a serger in five minutes. Um, you there's, um, I used to do a lot of clothing for for reenactors and LARPers and people who swing around fake swords for yeah. a hobby. Mm -hmm. And the problem was always, oh, I always tear the shoulders out of my tunic. I need to make a bigger tunic. I need a tunic that's roomier. No, you don't. You need a tunic that fits you. Yeah. Yep. That's, that's because, huge. That's huge. Yeah. It's what, what you do when you're making clothing is – and, and this is something that we've entirely lost. You have to make it fit a human body. And since the invention of the sewing machine, we've been making clothing in the flat. And this is, this is something that my historical background taught me. And it's, it was a huge revelation. Because of how you have to sew something on a machine, you have to make everything flat. And we're not flat. We're not two-dimensional. And we're not very easy to fit with two-dimensional shapes. If you sew by hand, you can mold the fabric as you go and make a three-dimensional shape. But when you're when things are laying on a table, it's you can do it, but it takes a little bit more finesse. It's much easier to do it in your hands, which is why tailors sew by hands. Um, and one of the things that really frustrates me with my patterns, every once in a while, I'll get an email from a customer saying, well, this pattern is faulty because the, the side seam on this piece and the side seam on that piece are, are different lengths. I measured them. Well, they're different lengths for a reason. And the reason is that you're supposed to ease one into the other because that's how it makes the three-dimensional shape. Yeah. I, I, and I, people yeah, don't get that. <laughs> I think that for, for for me, as far as like what quality is, is mm -hmm. that um, if you if you buy like machine made pants or slacks or whatever, and like they mm -hmm. like you said, it's like they have the two dimensional. You'll notice the cuffs mm -hmm. practically dissolve yep. after only like six months, and they're not yep. cu they're not cut to be worn by someone like myself. They're mm -hmm. just. It's just mash produced for everybody who has, let's say, a size 34 waist and a 32 length. And it's, it's, all, yeah. it's about the law of averages 
every mm-hmm. everybody within that size should be this shape. And that's not that's not true at all. So it's, it's shocking. I mean, I have this book. I'm actually thinking about writing an article um, and using one of the graphics out of this old sewing book that I have. But it's it's a, a period sewing manual and it has four women in silhouette of wildly varying shapes. Some are tall, some are short, some are heavy, some are thin. And it says these are all, these women all have a 38 inch bust. So, you know, when we buy clothing, you know, the 36 inch waist, 32 inch inseam, we buy uh, size, whatever it is, that's 36 inch busts, you know, 28 inch waists, 40 inch hips, whatever. Those are three measurements for a three. There are so many different ways those three dimensions can look. Those mm-hmm. three measurements mm-hmm. can look. Mm-hmm. And really, ready-to-wear clothing was never intended to be the end of the process. Ready-to-wear clothing was meant to be the thing you buy and take to your tailor or the thing you take home and, and alter. It was meant to be the beginning of the process of acquiring clothing for yourself, not the end. And we go into a store and, oh God, it kills me when I'm I'm out in the city and I see people walking around and they're stepping on their hems, yep. their pants. Yes. Because no one's had their pants. I mean, it used to be you would go into a men's store and, um, and the men's trousers were all cut with the pinking shears. Remember, they didn't even have hems. Yes. And the and they were the hems were ridiculously long, like they were six inches longer than Shaquille O'Neal needs, you know. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and um, but but they were they were really long and they weren't finished, so you absolutely could not wear them. <laughs> and we should go back to that. So people have to do their hems. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, we have this idea that clothing that we need to fit into clothing. This is one of the things I rail against. Um. We don't need to fit into clothing. Clothing is required to fit us. And you shouldn't have to diet or be taller or whatever to fit clothing. Clothing is a a slender amount of sizes specifically because you're supposed to fix it. And now we make it out of crappy material so you can't do that, which kind of breaks the whole paradigm. And there is no leftover material or there's no leeway inside. Everything is cut exactly to measure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have plenty of pairs of of, uh, vintage trousers, you know, suit trousers. And you see the the back seam, Mm -hmm. how enormous it is. The big triangular bits in the... The butt crack seam. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yes. They're not there because somebody messed up they're there so you can let the trousers out where people tend to grow yeah as they age and i think another <laughs> thing that i've no- recently noticed is that um um industrial sewing machines absolutely mm-hmm. sort of like perforate and destroy the fabric yeah um whereas like they leave such huge holes and mm-hmm. um it's uh, it's almost like it was like what was this sewed with a Gatling gun or something? I'm not yeah. really sure. Yeah, it's it's um, it takes a person. Yeah, it takes a person, and I really a, a few years ago I read an article that was talking about um, the increase in the number of people 
young people going into tailoring as a profession. And I was frankly shocked, but also encouraged because, I mean, honestly, if ever there was a time when we, we needed tailors, it's now, I mean, we complain about our, our society is becoming more obese and children are becoming more obese and all this kind of stuff. But I think that the reality is, um, I, I mean, that is, that is true, of course, mm-hmm. but um, the reality is also that our society is becoming more diverse. So we don't just have people of, of a certain, you know, certain typical size and shape. We have people who are naturally larger and naturally smaller, mm-hmm. you know, um, because let's, let's not, let's not discount, um, people who are genetically tinier than the average person, uh, as well as genetically larger than the average person. Yeah. And if we want to serve those people, we need to do something different from what we're doing. And it's not just a matter of, you know, let's, run up more clothes in bigger sizes because it's not just bigger, it's differently shaped. And I think that um, there's another angle here too because I'm such a greenie. There's an environmental angle. If clothing goes into landfills and doesn't decay, you know, especially polyester clothing is plastic for all intents and purposes and it doesn't go away. And if you're throwing away clothes, um, you're just adding to landfills. But if you if you have buy clothing that are made out of good materials and they can be remade, then you're doing something really environmentally sound as well as creating jobs for people in your local community. And it's it's the answer. <laughs> Eric, it's the answer. It is. It's the answer to uh, <laughs> to global warming and and yeah. and the death of the environment and, and all like that. Something. I, I mean, it's it's funny. I, I'm I'm working on a book, and the tentative title is "Tailoring Saves the World." <laughs> I think that's a perfect. I think that's a perfect. Uh, uh, perfect title right there because yeah. uh, I mentioned this in in a in a in a show that I was um, uh, doing yesterday where I was a guest host or a, mm-hmm. or just a guest and uh, I and I had said and it's funny because it's true it's that uh, all, we retrocentrics we may not be the first recyclers but we certainly are the best because yeah. we we take things that are old. And um, it drives people crazy because it's like I love to go antique shopping with my wife and I love to find old things and find new purposes for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's that's always like really exciting. like taking an old lamp and then rewiring it for, uh, you know, you know, for LED lights or, or, or whatever like that. And yeah, uh, yeah. We used to have a phone, you know, old, old uh, bake light phone that of course it, it came to be the, the case that you couldn't use it anymore because it had a, a rotary dial. But, um, originally when we first bought it, like 15 years ago, we had it wired for modernly wired. So you could have this old bake light phone, but you could use it in a modern phone system. Yeah. And yeah. you know, why not? There's nothing wrong with that. Why I, I've always railed against things um, I rail against a lot, Eric. Um, yeah, yes. <laughs> all the time. You're the perfect um, guest. Trust me, for a podcaster, I, you are I, the perfect I guest. I used to host a blog called Cass Rants. <laughs> like, is that a noun? Is it a verb? It's, I don't know. Um, but I, I rail against things as that aren't useful. I'm not – I don't care for um, – 
things that just sit there and do nothing. I don't care for going antiquing and buying things that are going to sit on a table and gather dust. I, mm-hmm. I like things that that do things, that accomplish tasks. And I think that there's a lot of, um, like, you know, the lamp or the telephone or clothes. Um, you know, why, why have it sitting in a corner when it can actually do something for you? And I, I get a lot more joy out of something that's functional than I do out of, um, I mean, I love art yeah. for art's sake, but I love when functional things are beautiful. And I think that something, I mean, it's one of the reasons I, I love Art Deco. You know, you have this beautiful piece of sculpture and it's a lamp. Yes. Know? Yes. Or it holds your pen nibs or, or something like that. It's, it's, so, it, it's all exciting. It's all exciting stuff where it's like you see something and it was just like, uh, oh, it's like I could, you know, it's like if you find an old broken shovel and it was just mm-hmm. like you can make it new again by simply getting a new shovel handle. It's not, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And I think that that's something, if we're ever going to get through the, the crisis that we've created with our disposable society, we have to think about that more often and, and do those kinds of things because, and, and that's, it's just, most people don't relate that to clothing. I've noticed, you know, people talk about, the shovel, putting a new handle on the shovel or, or repurposing something else. And um, it doesn't seem like it ever occurs to them that clothing is part of that reuse, reuse, reduce, recycle, you know? Yes. If you have four suits and you can have them remade because they're that good, um, isn't that better than having 10 that you're going to throw away next year? Exactly. You know? Exactly. There's a crazy statistic that I read somewhere that somewhere between 95 and 90% of everything that we buy will reach a landfill within the fir- the next 5 or 10 years. Oh yeah, I'm not surprised. And and it's kind of there's uh I wish I could remember the exact statistics and I'm looking at my bookshelf and I don't have that book here. Um but there was a book I had that was a sewing manual from 1932. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was a, a young woman's like home economics book because it also had, you know, how to keep a household budget and all these kind of things in it. And, um, you know, mostly it was sewing, but then it was also budgeting. And the numbers for spent, the, the amount of money that the household, house, household of four, should spend on clothing, either acquiring new clothing, fixing clothing, or having clothing cleaned, was something like a fifth to a third of the household income. Wow. And and if you think about it, and, and you know, you have to put it in, in terms of this was when we say laundering, um, it wasn't just taking things to the dry cleaner, it was also you know, um, you didn't have a washer and dryer in your house, so you took things to a local laundry and and the, the payment for that. But the idea that you would spend that much of your budget on clothes, and then if you think about it, you say, well, what do I use absolutely every minute of every day? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't use my car every minute of every day. I don't use food every minute of every day you know these these essential things that we think about um, air oxygen i use oxygen sure <laughs> air. 
but but clothing, you know, you're always almost always in clothes of some description every minute of every day. So it does make sense that it's a huge part of your budget. And and you know, this wasn't a book about um, you know, being the royal family. No. <laughs> this was a standard high school home economics textbook for an American girl. So it wasn't it wasn't an extraordinary amount. And uh and that that shocked me. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that it makes perfect sense. And and you're talking about people. I mean, 1932. Yes. This is not this is not a prosperous time in the United States. No, I think there was something else going on at the time. I think it was called the Depression. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. And 1933 was actually the worst year economically of, of the entire Great Depression. So, um, and, and granted, you know, the book was published in 1932, so it was written before then. But, you know, it wasn't written at the height of the golden age, you know, and, and it wasn't written, as I said, wasn't written for a royal family. This is how much princesses should spend on their clothing budget. It was how much you should spend for a family of four, you know, educating young women in this, this idea that they were going to have to take care of the, the budget for the household when they got married and had kids. So um, it, it flabbergasted me. I mean, the more I thought about it, the more sense it made. And I thought, geez, you know, we, we throw everything away. Yeah. Yeah, we, and we really do. You, you have to step back to, well, we throw it away because it wears out, but you have to step back to when it doesn't wear out. Yeah. And that does happen. Yeah. I I do a lot of vintage shopping and a lot of thrift store shopping and everything because of that. And, and for exactly, you know, the reasons you describe, if I had my druthers, (laughs) yes, you and me both. (laughs) If I had my druthers, I would love, 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 love. Like if I won the lottery, you know, I wouldn't go and and buy a Caribbean island. I've done the Caribbean island thing. It's yeah. overrated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't wear wool, Eric. You can't wear wool. Yeah. <laughs> no one told me I wouldn't be able to wear any of my hats in the Caribbean because my head was too hot. I don't know what I was thinking. Exactly. Um, I came home and I was like, oh, my God, I could wear sweaters. It was weird. Yeah. I, I, I missed the fall. I didn't miss the winter. I missed the fall. I missed October. You and Terrible. me both. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, I wouldn't, if I won the lottery, I would start a company that trains tailors and set forth to revolutionize the garment industry. <laughs> um because I think we're missing something very important. And, you know, we've, we've talked about the environmental angle. The, the one thing that we haven't talked about, or we, we've kind of touched on it slightly, but um, we have become absolutely crazy in this country in our pursuit of fitness and having the perfect body. Yes. And one of the things that tailoring does is a good tailor will make a hunchback look like a supermodel. Yes. And I don't think it's so important to be perfect as it is to have clothes that fit you nicely. Mm-hmm. And I think that we would, I mean, it's all, it's all fine and good to be healthy. I, I fully encourage people to be healthy. 
But the obsession we have with perfection is off the rails. And if your clothes fit you, nobody knows you're carrying around an extra 10 pounds. Exactly. And that's, that's something I think we have lost by stepping away from tailored clothing. Because now, as I said before, we want to fit in the clothes rather than making the clothes fit us. And it's, it's a, the clothes weren't created based on a real person. They were created based on an average, which, as you know, with averages, no one is actually the average. Well, very, <laughs> very, very few people are the actual average. And I've yet to meet any of those people. But also the thing is, yeah. is, is that our idea of perfection is also artificial because you realize that a lot of the celebrities and the models that we, that we look at that are being presented to us who are the ideal perfection. These people are obviously they, they work more than an hour each day or more in the gym, which is unnatural. Mm -hmm. Um, these people are, they have makeup applied to them before they even get in front of the camera. And then mm -hmm. after they get, you know, the pictures are taken with the right angles and the, the lighting that is just right. And then those images are brought into Photoshop. Now, as far as I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have a makeup artist. I don't have a choreo um, a cinematographer. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's like I don't have somebody taking photographs with me with expensive cameras. And I, with the exception of crazy things that I do with the backgrounds, I, I don't have somebody who, like, photoshops all of my photographs. We're living in, an, in a crazy world where we, this ideal is manufactured, Oh, Eric, how do you live without a photographer and a makeup artist following you around all the time? I do. Um, <laughs> no, it's, I, it's I funny. I had, um, when I was very young, like 12 or 13 years old, I, I became the height I am now. I'm five foot eight, so mm -hmm. I'm rather tall. I became five foot eight when I was 12. Mm-hmm. So uh, suddenly, <laughs> rather yep. suddenly. So I was five foot eight and, and I had this enormous head of hair. And, um, and I got some modeling gigs out of it because it was, it was the Brooke Shields era. And I also had bushy eyebrows. So I had bu there bushy eyebrows, go. lots of hair and I was tall. And, um, so I did some modeling gigs when I was that young and the, I, I couldn't believe, and this is in the days before Photoshop. I mean, they would just hand touch things, mm -hmm. but I couldn't believe the photos that that was me. It was so not the person in the mirror. Yes. And I, I think that did me a lot of good, you know, learning that at a young age that, well, if I don't look that way for real, neither does anyone else. Exactly. Yes. And now, you know, you can go on, on websites and find these 40 pictures of, of celebrities where, you know, you have like the Photoshop effects. When you look at what they do, you're just like, my God, that doesn't even look like a real person, but you're, yes. you know, it's, yes. um, and and, and we, we are kind of delusional. I mean, and, and the other thing is that, and here's, here's to bring it back to tailoring and <laughs> making your clothes fit you. I had a friend who um, was a seamstress for the uh, TV and movie industry in New York. And basically, she was a freelancer. She would just get called up on jobs to do stuff or like, you know, maybe this week they need um, – they're short on seamstresses on um, Law and Order, so they would call her and she would do some stuff. 
they tailor t-shirts they tailored jeans they there's not a celebrity on television who every inch of what they're wearing is no mistake yeah yes yes and we look in the mirror and go oh this doesn't fit me right because there's something wrong with me no no. There's nothing wrong with you except that you don't have a seamstress working for you. you know? <laughs> and, and maybe you should. Maybe there should be more seamstresses and tailors in the world. I mean, there maybe should there certainly should. be more seamstresses Seriously. and tailors in the world. Seriously. I mean, that, that's, that sounds like a very legitimate way to, to, to make a living is to become a seamstress and becoming an expert on, on fabric and how to, yeah. how to piece uh, uh, cloth together. And one of the jobs of seamstresses in particular and um, is that they're meant to look at their subject and tell their customer what their customer needs. You, know, you could go to a seamstress and say, I want this off the shoulder ball gown with a skirt that goes like this. And they're, they're supposed to tell you no. Yes. <laughs> Because, oh, honey, please, you know, <laughs> you really don't want the, the off the shoulder thing is going to make you look like a cow in a dress. You don't want to do this. And this is one of the other reasons you you need to have a, a, a local person, you know, a person with whom you have a relationship so they can say to you, you'll look like a cow and you won't freak out that someone's just told you you look like a cow. Yeah. But, um, you know, there are things that we can't wear. Like I I have really, really narrow shoulders and. If you put me in something that's too fussy, I will look like I have no head. I mean, uh, my head will just look incredibly, incredibly small. I'll be completely yeah. overwhelmed by the dress. Yes. And I know that about myself because, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time. But most people don't realize that you you should never wear that type of sleeve. Or I, I know that that's really pretty in the picture, but it's not going to look good on you. And that's not... It, people whose job it is to be professionally pretty, mm -hmm. like, you know, actors and, and, and celebrities, they know these things. You yes. wouldn't catch them dead in something that doesn't look good on their figure. Yeah. And um, it's not because they're perfect. It's because they make choices because it's their profession to make those choices. Yes. And we act like that's some kind of magic and yep. it's not magic. It's, it's like anything in your profession. It's just part of it. You just know what to do. And, um, and used to be, you know, in the, in the time period that you and I adore so much, yeah. um, normal people used to care about the, you Normal people would go and say, Oh, I love that dress, but I can't wear stripes. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, oh, it's that's I really love the new collars, but it's going to call attention to my ears that stick out or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and we didn't think it was a failing in ourselves. And now we think it is because we have this idea of perfection, which is ludicrous. Mm -hmm. No one. No one is that person. Right. You know. So, um, yeah, more seamstresses and tailors in the world yeah. and everything, it just, it would fix everything. Everybody would be so happy walking around pretty clothes. Great. And, you know, 
fix the environment and everyone would be nice to each other and and that the world would be happy. Right. Right. <laughs> world peace would break out. Right. I think that one of the things that it's like um sort of like drives me crazy is that if somehow I got into this conversation about um the the cost of one of my fedoras and um mm-hmm. I, the, the going rate is somewhere between $507 for one fedora. And mm-hmm. some somebody younger than than us had balked at the 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 cost, the price tag, 5 you know, $500 for one hat. And I said, "Well, first of all, it's not just a hat, it's a fedora. Second of all, mm-hmm. the thing is is that I've owned this for 10 years. And yeah. I still get compliments from people who say that it looks brand new. Mm-hmm. Now, if I wear it 365 days a year for 10 years, how much does that equal, um, you know, pennies per day? How what what does that work out to? And it was just yeah. like, and and the, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a quality product. Um, the notion of actually paying through the nose for something that you're going to wear consistently, like uh, like a really good overcoat, you can expect to spend. A couple of hundred dollars on a really good overcoat mm-hmm. that's going to last forever. That's going mm-hmm. to become a family heirloom. People have no concept of paying something yep. that much for for a garment that you're going to wear for not just years yep. but for decades. Yeah, I'll tell you what I I um I often tell the story of about twelve thirteen years ago. I decided I was going to give myself a present and I was going to bu- go buy something at the Burberry store and not just a scarf, <laughs> not no, just a tan yeah. scarf, because frankly, tan looks horrible on me. I'd never wear a Burberry scarf. Um, I have a Burberry scarf. It's it's lime green. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But so I go into Burberry and there's this pair of women's trousers. Yeah. And they are like butter. Mm-hmm. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous wool. And I'm like, oh my God, I have to try these on. And I have no idea what size I am because I haven't been in a, a dress store sure. like that in a decade. And the woman who was helping me was like, oh, you look like this size and pulled the size off the rack and handed them to me. And I went into the dressing room to try them on. And then she comes in. And I was like, why are you, I'm going to take my clothes off and you're in my dressing room. And she's like, no, I'm just helping. And I'm like, okay, you're helping. What the hell is going on? Mm -hmm, (laughs) I'm a little mm -hmm. freaked out by this, but I put them on and she's like, oh yeah. And then she starts pinning. Yes. And because I have, I have a big butt. Okay. I have, I have baby got lots of back. And so she picked out the size by looking at me. And this is this girl in the mall store, you know, and we're not talking. I didn't go to Burberry in London. This is the girl at the mall. Sure. Pick the right size off the rack just by looking at me. And it fit my butt, but my waist is too small. So she starts pinning it. And then the cuffs aren't done, of course. So she starts pinning the cuffs and everything. And I'm like, what is she doing? And she's like, um, are you local? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I, I live like three hours away. Yeah. And she's like, oh, well, we'll just FedEx these to you. Awesome. They did the alteration. Now, I paid $350 for these trousers. Yeah. But they were going to be $350 whether I walked in there and didn't try them on or what. I mean, the alterations were not additional. Yeah. This is just what they do. 
And and matter of fact, the um they were too long when they sent them to me. And I emailed them and said they're a little long and they were like, "Oh, send them back. Here's a shipping label." Yeah. And then they did it twice. You know, they did it again. Yeah. And so they paid for FedEx for me twice. They did all of these alterations. And, you know, it's now 13 years later. And I've had them remade because I gained weight. Yeah. And and so $350 divided by 13, how much is that? You know? Exactly. It's nothing. Yeah, exactly. It's nothing. Exactly. And it was just like, why don't you understand and I say this to not you, obviously, yes. but to the other people out there <laughs> I understand. Who, who may be, you know, not regular listen, listeners to the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, here, why don't you understand that it's a good thing to spend the extra money to get the product that is going to last a good long? And then, of, and then, of course, you throw this in where somebody says, well, styles change. And you think about that. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, no, I understand why you would not want to spend a couple of hundred dollars on the latest fad, which you yeah. know. Like bell bottoms. Like Don't bell- spend $300 on bell bottoms. That's not going to last. The worst thing, the only thing worse than bell bottoms mm-hmm. or the, and the only thing worse than something that's made with polyester, mm-hmm. polyester bell bottoms that are the the worst pattern of plaid that is just like you're making me sick (laughs) i bet their plaids don't match either no no and it was and it's it's like one of those where it's like you see it and you're just like oh no uh, must not strangle (laughs) (laughs) turn away turn away now before your brain bleeds (laughs) keep keep your eyes shut marion don't look at it um the one the one phrase i cannot i cannot i cannot stand when there's a couple of them when i when i do have to shop for clothing Mm -hmm. is that when you have the salesperson who is obviously kissing your ass, not because you're a nice person or you're a celebrity, but they're trying to make a sale and they're Mm -hmm. trying to sell you on something that is trendy. And they use Mm -hmm. the phrase, well, everybody is wearing this today. (laughs) That is so the way to lose me. Oh my God, that's so the way to lose me. Number one, I want to set the trends. <laughs> and number two, you clearly have misread me. <laughs> you know, have, have, is this the first time we've met? Yes, I, I think it is. <laughs> I, I love it when they say that, oh, well, this is, this is, the, this is the style this year. And it mm-hmm. was just like, are you looking at me? Are you, yeah, right. <laughs> do I look like somebody who is? <laughs> Dude, I'm wearing a fedora. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, and not only that, it was just like, um, it, it, you know, and it's like, it's, and it's obvious, it's obvious what's going on because mm-hmm. the salesperson is being pressured to sell stuff, get it out of the store because other trendy stuff more trendy stuff the current trendy stuff is being unloaded off of a truck as we speak and they need to make room for it Uh, yeah and i and i mean i'm just gonna come off sounding like a a decrepit old cow who just bitches about kids these days being on my lawn but 
Uh, and it's it's not kids these days. It's the entire garment industry has gone this way. Yeah. And and it, wouldn't it be better? And I say this as a woman with a three bedroom house, and all three closets are mine. Yeah. <laughs> wouldn't it be better to have fewer good clothes that you could change and update and add things to, like? scarves or hats or you know whatever um and have those things pay a lot of money for those things and have them turn over more slowly because you don't have to sell 50 25 dollar throwaway dresses this week yes you know you could sell one just throwing out a number, $1,000 dress, but that makes your week. Yes. You know? And, and as a business person, um, you know, this doesn't, this doesn't work for anybody anymore. And, and it's, it's a shame. It, I would own different businesses like reconstructing history would certainly have branched out into other things. If people had this philosophy, um, because, People will talk about quality and quality and quality and then just not – at one point in my reenactment world, people were complaining. We, we used to do this thing and say, um, reconstructing history will, will outfit you in everything but the shoes, mm-hmm. everything but the shoes because we, could, we had a pattern for everything else. And, um, and someone said, well, why don't you do the shoes? So I, I sourced shoes um, and – we had these German 16th century shoes that everybody was going crazy for because they couldn't find them anywhere else. And one of my very close friends said, I, I, would, I don't pay $85 for the shoes I wear every day. Why would I pay $85 for shoes I only wear on the weekends in my hobby? What? And I thought, you don't pay $85 for the shoes you wear every day? What? No, I mean, I'm, I'm a person who I always had bad feet, even as a child. So I never had, I'm, I'm, I was never that woman who had like 500 pairs of shoes because I have such bad feet. I have to be very careful about what shoes I buy. Yeah. And even when I was a little kid, my mom would take me to this specialty shoe store every year before school started. So I would get my pair of shoes for the year Yeah. and they were expensive. You know, they were, you know the most expensive pair of shoes I'm sure she ever bought because my parents were not wealthy, but they were my only shoes. Yeah. I had the, the, the school shoes and then the dress shoes to go to church or something. Sure. Sure. Um, sure. And you know, a pair of sneakers to play around in, but, but my school shoes were the best shoes that we could afford because I had screwed up feet. Yeah. And, um, and I still have that philosophy like, you know, I have a pair of shoes and, and, and we're not even talking custom made shoes. You know, it's yeah. not like I'm not the, I wish I could afford custom made shoes. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. We'd have them in a second. But um, I have a pair of fry boots mm-hmm. and I love my fries. And I remember they're they're 18 hole. I call them my 18 hole docks. They're clearly not Doc Martens because they're fries, yeah. but they're 18 hole, you know, knee high, 18 hole black boots with lug soles and the tongue is sewn in all the way up the sides. Yeah. So it doesn't flop around. I have stood in ankle deep water in Ireland in these boots and not gotten my feet wet. I bought these boots to go on my 
first honeymoon with my previous husband mm-hmm. in 1994. There you go. I still have these boots. And I remember buying them and thinking, oh, my God, these are so expensive. Oh, my God, they're so expensive. Oh, but I want them and they look so good and they feel so comfortable and yeah. everything. Yeah. And I still have them and they need – like I need to hit the uh, the grommets with some – model paint to make them black again. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> and I've had to replace the laces like three or four times because they they get um from pulling them through the the grommets and the hooks and everything, they yeah. get worn. But and and honestly, they were probably $150 when I bought them, which I thought was extraordinarily expensive at the time. But it's 22 years later, 22 and a half years later. Yeah. And, and I still wear them. Yeah. And that's it is very very difficult. I mean the problem with what we're what we're saying is that you and I are in a time of life where we have a little bit of disposable income. Sure. And the problem is being someone maybe a 20 something person who is just kind of getting on their feet and always concerned about will I have money for the rent and still be able to feed myself at the end of the month that they don't have this disposable income that, that, you know, $350 for a pair of pants or $500 for a fedora is, is more than they can afford to spend. Um, because it's a lot of money to put down at one time. It absolutely is. Yes. It is. You know, it's, it's a paycheck. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but it will, never do you wrong. Exactly. And that's the hard thing to realize is that when mm-hmm. I'm having a conversation with the with other kids who are just getting into a vintage style um, mm-hmm. or a lot of Indiana Jones cosplayers who I mean, <laughs> being an Indiana Jones cosplayer is a gateway drug into yes. the world of, of vintage. <laughs> oh, we just went on a on a trip. And um, for a present, I got my husband's uh, the Indie Tux. Yes. From the beginning of Temple of Doom. Yes. But because because the thing is, is that, listen, you're either going to spend, you're going to keep buying the same cheap hat mm-hmm. five or six times over and over and over again, or you're going to wait a little longer and then buy mm-hmm. the, the mid price or the high end fedora and only buy it once. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. You, you see these kids who, who buy these, these cheap fedoras, they modify them. And then they have a couple of them and then they put them on eBay thinking that, oh, well, people will just buy this because no, because you've ruined it essentially. Mm -hmm. And the thing, but you should have just gotten, and I, and I know this sounds, I know it sounds mean spirited and I know it makes me sound like a prude. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if you're just starting out, go out and buy the, go and buy the, uh, a Kubra Federation, um, Mm -hmm rather than buying the Dorfman Pacific mm-hmm. and buy the, you know, buy the Penman or, or, or buy yeah. the art faucet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, instead of just buying the same cheap thing over and over again, and that spills into other aspects of life as well. Yes. Because it's, it's, it's almost like talking to people about painting your interior of the house. You're either going mm-hmm. to buy the cheap paint and the cheap paint is going to fade or it's going to bleed or whatever. And then you're going to have to paint the house again. Now, are you going to use cheap paint again a second time? Or are you going to invest a little bit more and buy the 
the gallon of paint that's $32 and do it right this time and not have to do it again. But it's like it, that's something that people just don't ever click. It never, it, people never get it. They never understand that it's like you buy it once. You buy the good, the best thing once, and you'll never have to do it again. Unless, of yeah. course, you get addicted, like some of us, and you're constantly <laughs> buying. It's, it's the gateway drug, the first fedora. <laughs> well, I always say it's the cheapest one you'll ever buy. The mo- the mo- the one that's the most expensive that gets you into the thing is the cheapest one you'll exactly. ever buy. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's well, it, it's kind of funny when I used to, I used to, uh, I wrote these this series of articles. That were for beginners, you know, the beginner's guide, your first garb, they were called your first garb. Yeah. And it was about getting people out on the reenactment field in stuff that was, wasn't crappy. That was, that was well-made stuff that they made themselves. And one of the things I said was, you will never spend more, the, the most expensive piece of garb you ever make is this first one. Yeah. And that's not because... It's the most expensive because certainly, you know, mm-hmm. reenactment as a hobby, you're, you're going to spend a lot of money. Sure, <laughs> but the most expensive thing that you will ever, the the thing you will spend the most amount of money on is the first one because of your perception, and because of the time it takes you. You know the whole learning curve thing. You have this if if time is money, which it is, um, if you factor that into what you make and the mistakes you make and how you have to redo things and and all that, it is the most effort you'll spend is that first thing. But then it gets easier. Exactly. <laughs> it's a gateway drug. Um, do, are you a Terry Pratchett fan by any chance? Uh, no, I can't say that I am. Okay. Um, Terry Pratchett has this one character, Commander Vimes, who is the commander of the Night Watch. Mm-hmm. And Vimes is from a ghetto. He's from a horrible part of the city and he's always been poor and he was an alcoholic and et cetera, et cetera. And in the course of a bunch of different stories, he meets a woman who is his soulmate and he loves her Mm -hmm. and they're perfect for each other and they get married and live happily ever after. Mm -hmm. And she is one of the richest people in town. And, um, but she's, she's old money. So she has like, you know, a, a couple suits of tweed that she constantly wears. You know, she's always yeah. clad in tweed. And, and you know, and the, one of the things that he talks about is the difference um, between being poor and being rich. And the difference is that when you're poor, you buy a $10 pair of boots. And when you get a hole in the bottom of them, you have to stick cardboard in the bottom so your feet don't get wet but eventually it's no use and you just have to buy another pair of ten dollar boots and if you're rich you buy the hundred dollar boots and you have them for 20 years and they never get a hole in them and that his whole philosophy changed because um if you could afford the hundred dollar boots you wouldn't have the problems yeah exactly and you find you know that which out. is Getting there is the problem. You, fi- <laughs> you, know? you find that out pretty I mean, quickly. You find yeah, that out pretty quickly. Yeah, and and also, uh, price doesn't equal quality. You know, I mean, there are there are. I'm sure there are five hundred dollar fedoras out there that are terrible. Yes. Um, and also, dare I blaspheme? Made in the USA does not necessarily equal quality. Not anymore. 
No, it's, I mean, there are some places that are terrific and I've, I've specifically bought stuff that was made in the USA because it yep. ha- it was, you know, mother's a garment worker. I, I mm-hmm. look for the union label <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, um, and it, it was awful. You know, the finishing was awful. It fell apart, et cetera, et cetera. Of yep. course, it's trying to compete in a market with cheap things made overseas. So, you know, I, I understand why it's junk, but you can't, I mean, I would rather buy something well-made overseas from a company that pays its workers well and doesn't exploit children than buy something crappy made in the U.S. Because I'm not, I'm not just about, I'm about saving U.S. jobs. There are some U.S. jobs that need not to be saved. Yeah. (laughs) If I, if I might be horrible. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, we, the thing that used to make U.S. manufacturing good was because we we had high quality. And if we're going to drop quality in exchange for low prices. It's not worth it. Then, yeah, it's, then we need to get out of the game. Yeah. Because that's, that's not the way it should go. No, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that, I mean, obviously frustrates me a lot is the entire notion of, you see, you see kids going, kids, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> listen to me, get off my lawn. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, you, um, you know, see, you see kids going to these, these high end stores mm-hmm. and I, you know, I don't want to throw out any big names, um, um, but I'll, I'll throw out um, one of their initials is A&F. Mm-hmm. And you see these kids going into these stores and, and they're blowing big bucks on all the trendy clothes that all, all the hip kids are, are, are wearing. Yeah. And, and they're t-shirts that look like the stuff that I, I, I polish the furniture with. Exactly. <laughs> and it was yeah. just like you do it. You have expensive clothes that are made to look cheap and worn mm-hmm. out. And I'm not, I don't understand how is, how is that the style? How is that the fashion? I, no, I don't I, understand that. I totally understand the fashion for worn out clothes. I understand this casual disregard and yeah, I was just working on my car, but I'm so cool. I don't even have to change for you. I understand that mindset. I don't understand going to a store and paying a hundred dollars for a t-shirt that looks like that. I understand, like, going and working on your car and making your T-shirt look like that. Yeah. It's, it's and you know what the, the mockery is? The mockery is, since you, you, you obliquely referred to A&F, they made Teddy Roosevelt's travel wardrobe yes. when he went on, I'm going to say safari. Safari is probably the wrong word, but when he founds... The bear that became known as the teddy bear. Yes. That famous, famous trip. Yes. They made his entire travel wardrobe. It's amazing how times have changed for some. Oh, it's killing me. I just want to go there and go, you know, I want the Teddy Roosevelt thing. You know, I think that that would do that. That would that would that would be bring an old Abercrombie and Fitch. I mean, it's out Mm -hmm. of the bag now. It's out of the bag. Yeah, Yeah, we know who we're talking about. (laughs) Take the old Abercrombie and Fitch catalog to a modern Abercrombie and Fitch and say, Hey, I, I'm looking all over the store and I can't find these items. Can you help me out? And, and, and if I, and if one of us could videotape the other and put it on YouTube, I think it would get laughs in our circles. Oh my God. It would be, 
You know, it's it's kind of interesting for a while there, and it, it kind of ebbs and flows. Banana Republic. Yes. Every once in a while, you'll go into Banana Republic and go, yeah, this is okay. Yeah, this, I can, mm-hmm. that's good. That's a good place to start. It, <laughs> but um, I think... As I said, you know, if I had if I had a million dollars and I could start another business, it would be yeah. uh, tailoring shops that pushes. Because I think you and I are not the only two people in the country no. who feel this way. I mean, we're not even the only two people in the Northeast. You no. know, it's it's there are many of us. We have we have many people who would go out and buy good trousers and good suits and good jackets and and tailored shirts and this kind of thing if there were places to buy them and and there aren't and oh my god as a businesswoman it kills me that i can't just go i will throw a million dollars at this project you know exactly because it it would it wouldn't you know it's it wouldn't be it, it would be wildly successful within the parameters of catering to a certain group of people Yes. You know, and um, and particularly with the fact that it seems like the love of things vintage tends to, I'm going to blaspheme here. Okay. Be more popular among people, people of an older generation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who are not necessarily the... Uh, average size that you find in the stores that um, it makes more sense for us to buy things that can be tailored, that can be let out, that can be taken in, you know, that, that can be altered. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can't tell you how much it kills me that I can't just go, Oh yeah, no, I will write this business plan and I'll get some investors you know, <laughs> because it's the, the simple fact of the matter is you couldn't demonstrate to investors a fast enough return on their investment to well, please them. But I think th- you have to take the loss. You know, I, th- I think that if for a, for a future podcast, I would love to be able to um, do a show just dedicated on uh, starting a business with the mm-hmm. retro centric clientele in mind. You know, I, I just looked at this. We've been recording for over an hour and we yeah. have yet to talk about reconstructing history. I know. I know. I thought you were going to cut me off and go, well, Cass, that's nice. See you bye. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry to do this for. to you, but your hour is just about up. Before I let you go, do I need to re- renew your prescription? Um, so how did how did um, how did you start your business? I, I know that sounds like a very broad question, but how how did you go about it? Well, it's it's um somebody pissed me off. <laughs> yeah, these this is this somebody, is going to be a good one. Somebody done made me mad, and um, I had to prove it to them that uh, well, <laughs> well, you know, way back in the the beginning of time, I got interested in historical reenactment because I love clothes, and and this is. A story I don't often tell. Like, I often tell the second half of the story, but I'm going to tell you the first half of the story because I'm feeling that fellow feeling, Eric. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) um, I love to dress up. And I used to be, back in the 80s, I was a club kid. We used to go. My best friend lived on Staten Island, and I used to stay at her house, and we would go clubbing in, in Manhattan, take the Staten Island ferry over, go clubbing. 
you know, get the ferry back when the sun was coming up between the World Trade Centers. <laughs> yeah. And and so, you know, you dressed up kind of crazy to go out to the clubs. And, and then it was kind of funny. We were like, work. remember the, the movie Working Girl? Of course. She was, of she course. was from... You remember? Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, we used to do. I used to go and spend the summers with her on Staten Island, and we would get temp jobs and go in Manhattan and answer phones for these downtown businesses and earn enough money to like go to the clubs on the weekend. So, mm-hmm. so we dressed kind of crazy, and then <clears throat> it just became that that. Um, well, I didn't live in New York anymore, and it stopped. I stopped having places to dress up and go out. Like I would go out and see a band play and everybody who was there seeing the band play were wearing jeans and t-shirts. And and it's not that I have a problem with jeans and t-shirts. It's just that it's not a good look for me. I I look really kind of boring in jeans and t-shirts. So I never, um, I mean, I wear them all the time, but I, you know, I wear them horseback riding. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, it's not a becoming look for me. So I always wanted to wear something different. So I, I was auditioning for a play and we were waiting for the director to come back and say, you know, who got the part. And so we all started chatting amongst ourselves because we were too nervous to sit there quietly. And this one girl said, oh, I just got back from a, a week camping with 10,000 of my closest friends <laughs> yeah. all dressed in renaissance clothing and i went where does this happen and exactly. how can i be one of your friends um and that's how i i was introduced to i broadly termed the dress up and play hobbies the everything from you know fantasy larping to very strict historical reenactment because i wanted i didn't i couldn't go to the clubs anymore the club's the clubs weren't it. We know we'd gone grunge. It was the nineties and everything yeah. had gone grunge and yeah. nobody was dressing up in crazy clothing and going to clubs. So, um, at least not the clubs that I could find. Yeah. And so I got into, um, medieval reenactment because I wanted to dress up. And of course I couldn't wear what everybody else was wearing. I had to strike out in a new direction, of which course. is something I rail against now. I'm like, I'm so, oh, just, just do this thing. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, and I've read this book about the Shinron gown, which is a 16th century Irish dress. And I want to know more about it. And so I wrote to the museum because we used to write letters and the museum curator wrote back to me. And then I wrote back to her again and asked her more questions because she didn't give me all the information I wanted. And she wrote back and she was like, well, you're asking more questions than I could possibly answer. Why don't you just come here on a Monday when we're closed and we'll open the cases for you? And I bought a plane ticket. (laughs) There you go. And I showed up at the door of the museum on a Monday morning with this letter in my hand with the curator's signature on it. Now, of course, she was blowing me off. Of course, she was saying, oh, you annoying person. You've asked me too many questions. But... You know, I I chose to read it as an invitation, and I had this. You know, don't don't try sarcasm on me when, oh I, when you're going to put a signature on a piece of paper. <laughs> so I went and I I um I got into the museum and they opened the cases for me, like they said, and and I measured this garment and I made a replica. And a friend of mine who was a textile engineer working in Philadelphia 
said to me, why don't you make a pattern? Because I hate sewing for other people. I should mention that. Okay. I, I really dislike, I'm not, a, I'm not a great seamstress or tailor. I sew because nobody else will do it for me. Yes. I sew because I'm, I've studied this garment and I need to figure out the ins and outs of how to make it. So I'm going to sew it because I need to understand it. Um, I, I'm not, I would love if somebody sewed for me because I wouldn't have to do it. I, I don't enjoy it. And so she, she was like, well, if you, you know, people keep asking you to make this thing for them. Well, why don't you make a pattern? Then you could sell them the pattern. You don't have to sew anything. There you go. And I said, I can't make a pattern. I'm not simple. I'm not simplicity. People just don't make patterns. And she's like, you're kidding, right? And she introduced me because she was in the textile industry in Philadelphia, introduced me to a pattern drafter and, and how taught me how to grade and basically, um, took me down that road. And you know what I have 275 patterns later, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's really how it started, but that's how the idea started. The idea started fully seven years before I produced a pattern because it took me a long time to like get all my ducks in a row. And there was a lot of, oh, I don't want to do this. Oh, what's the point? Oh, yep, no one's going to yep, buy it. Yep. Oh, someone's done it before. Oh, I'm too late, you know. And then I worked for a guy who was, he was a, a financial analyst and I'd worked, I should mention, um, when I first graduated from college, when I worked in New York, I was a broker for, um, remember 2008? <laughs> Why, yes. Yes. Yeah. As a matter, it was one of the best and worst years of my life. The, the um, word commercial paper got thrown around yes, a lot. Yes, I guess. I used to trade commercial paper. There you go. I would like to state for the record, that I traded commercial paper in 1989 to 1991 um, before the final bits of, um, I don't mean Dodd-Frank. What do I mean, Eric? Oh. Um, Glass-Steagell. Glass-Steagell was Glass repealed. Steagle. Yes, I just so, wrote an article about that, too. Oh, damn yeah. my memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you want to have me on the show and talk about the economy. <laughs> oh. Oh. Oh, oh my God! I, you're going to have to become a regular guest. Oh yeah, we might actually have to do do a regular show together. It 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 would be lovely because I'll tell you what I well when when 2008 happened I did this I I was on very active on Live Journal at the time, and a bunch of my friends who knew what I did in my other life were like, "Tell us about what's happening with the economy because we're scared." And like my entire blog, which was normally just about me ranting about customers who yeah. annoyed me. Um, had turned into this economics lesson yeah. of me basically helping people calm down because, you know, they're, all the stuff that was being said in the media that was really panicking people. And it was like, oh, my God. But anyway, so, um, yeah, um, I, I did it before Glass-Steagall yeah. got repealed. The last bits of Glass-Steagall got signed away. And so we only, we only traded... Um, with commercial banks, we didn't we didn't trade with any banks who issued mortgages because you couldn't do that back then. Yeah, for and, good um, reason. For good reason. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason why you don't do it. <laughs> and um, 
Geez, Eric, there was a point. We were talking about you starting your own business and, oh, and yes. how well, you someone got... made me mad. Yeah. Right. Someone made me mad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for paying attention. <laughs> um, so I was working for this financial analyst and I was like his girl Friday. And he, um, he was a lot of talk like most brokers are. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because I don't think, I don't know if he didn't know I was a broker or if when I told him I had been a broker, he didn't really believe me. Um, and so I was his girl Friday and I was doing all this stuff and one, there were, it was Labor Day weekend, I remember. And he wanted his home office straightened out because he's like, my home office is a literal disaster area. It's, I can't even find anything in there. It, we've just been using it as a junk room. You know, someday would you come over to the house and straighten that out because I would really like to start using my home office more. And I said, sure, you know, I'm, I don't actually have Labor Day plans. Could I come over on Labor, Labor Day? I won't bother your family at all. I'll just go in the office and I'll do my thing. So the office was out in the, like the pool house, you know, so the kids are playing in the pool and everything. And, you know, mom is hanging out by the pool, you know, they're just having a, a family weekend at home yep. and I'm doing the thing and <laughs> with my hair tied up in a bandana and, you know, coughing from all the dust I'm kicking up. And I did the thing and, um, I was working through an agency and the agency called me on Tuesday morning and said, don't go in. And I said, what do you mean? Don't go in. Oh. And Apparently, and, and the, the person I worked for at the agency was a good personal friend of mine. And she's like, I will deny I ever said this if you tell anyone I said this. Yeah. And of course, I'm telling people. But, uh, but Well, yeah. now it's okay. Now it's safe. Well, it's, and I'm not mentioning names, of course. Um, the wife thought I was too pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard variations of of that story from and from temp I, agencies right yep and i was like i she met me with my hair tied in a rag covered in dust and sweat <laughs> and she was jealous of i you. must be i must be amazing <laughs> yeah well aren't you though aren't you just a little i, I i'm yeah <laughs> but but it just pissed me off it pissed yeah. me off so badly i thought here i am i'm working for this guy for a month and he's talking to me about this and all these plans he has and all this you know he wanted to do this and that and the other thing and you can help me because you're my assistant and, yeah and he's telling me the story and i said to myself that day i will never again allow my financial future to be controlled by a crazy person uh, yep Unless that crazy person's me, then all bets are off. (laughs) I'm the only crazy person driving this train. Um, yeah, and that was that was Labor Day 2003. Yeah, and I I had you know since about 96 or 96 was when I got the idea for my friends to open the pattern business. Yeah, and I'd been working on little pieces of it. And in Labor Day 2003, I went, that's it. That's it. That's it. Now you've made me mad. And um, on October 17th of 2003, I released my first patterns. Yeah. Because you made me mad. And, um, you know, and then 
quit my job in April 2007. The next job, the, the following job. Yeah. <laughs> Hired my husband in April 2008. And uh, stuff. <laughs> But yeah, don't make me angry. I'll do I'll do great things. <laughs> or maybe you should make me angry. I'll do more great things. Exactly. That's I mean, all of my successes have all begun from somebody saying, "You can't do that," or yep. "You shouldn't do that." Mm-hmm. I remember when I started my my website, and a lot of people had said, "Oh, be careful, Eric. Watch out. Mm-hmm. Don't get into trouble." And I says, "Well, no. That's <laughs> that's why I'm doing it. You know." <laughs> oh my God! There was this one time. I was, I used to be really worried about stuff because, you know, when you have, when you're selling to a public and, and I mean, really, I had been on the internet, I'd, uh, reconstructinghistory.com, I bought the domain name in 1997 and, you know, I was out there and um, talking about things and I had historical information on the website. So there, there, by 2003, there were people who knew me that I could say, oh, and look, I have patterns. Yeah. So the, these people who already knew about me. They weren't people who'd never heard of me buying my patterns. So it was very sensitive to, I have to keep them happy. I have to make sure they think well of me, which is not something that comes natural to me. I'm kind of a flip the bird to the rest of the world kind of person. I'm, I've always been very independent thinking. And, and if, if I think I'm doing the right thing and being true to myself, um, if you tell me I'm wrong, well, that's your opinion. Exactly. But I'm gonna go over here and be wrong. You know. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks very much. Exactly. Um, I will consider your opinion, but I'm gonna go over here and do my thing. Yeah. Um, and so, but I was very sensitive to it because I knew that the people who bought from me were people who personally knew me on the internet. Yeah. You know, they, it, and it, and and you remember, you know, 1997. It wasn't like it is now. You Not know, at all. You you really could know the names of the people who followed you because you talk to them all the time. Exactly. And somebody accused me of plagiarism. Yep. And I lost it. I was so worried. Yeah. Because I thought, this this will kill me. This will kill me. Yeah. And I scrambled and scrambled and scrambled trying to prove that it wasn't right. And, you know, it, it turns out the people, the, the person who accused me, um, was talking through her hat. She was saying, oh, these people told me this. People never told her anything. Yep. And I had permission from the people whose work I used, d- direct provable permission from these people to use their work. And plus, I wasn't copying anything they did. I was using them as a reference. So, you know, I gave them tons of credit. I gave them more credit than you normally have to give references. You just put them in your references. Sure. But, um, but I thank them because they were very they were very useful to me in giving me information, you know, before their their things were published and all this. And um, and I was completely paranoid that my business was going to go away. And this was literally just when it started making more money than it was costing. And I was like, here it goes. Here, here it goes right through my fingers just as soon as it started working. Yeah. And my pattern sales went through the roof. Of course, because you had a decent product that was yours and it was legitimate. No, 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 no. 
because people want to see what the plagiarism accusation ah. let's, let's not pretend it was anything good. It was totally gossip. There is no such thing as bad publicity. You're right. So, like, I ran into this woman who started the rumor um, a few years later, and I was like, can you do that again? Because my sales, I could use a bump. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh my God, it doesn't matter what they say about you as long as they're talking. I mean, I don't yes. like to believe that. But it's true. Um, but and, and the truth of the matter is there there did blow up this whole big fight with the people who had been with me all along saying, no, she's wonderful and would never do such a thing. And the other people going, oh, she's awful. And so there was this fight. But I cleaned up. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, um, and, and, and now I just, I just had someone, someone very close to me say, you should be careful what you say on the internet. Like, oh, honey, why start now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I rem I remember, uh, just a little, a little while ago, I had this huge, huge controversy. Mm -hmm. Um, somebody had actually, um, uh, paid me to buy a URL for him and to build a uh, um, a template for a website and he could do whatever it is that he wanted with it and um, mm -hmm. I helped him out from time to time and then I get a then I get a phone call um, in the middle of the day from from this client of mine and he said have you seen today's newspaper and I and I said uh, uh, well no because I'm 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 busy and the local newspaper is, is really more of a rag than anything else. It's a perfect thing. That mm -hmm. It's like when, when you can't run to the store to get um, a newsprint to, uh, to, to package your, 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 uh, your delicates and your fragiles, it's, it's what you buy in a pinch. Birdcage filler. Birdcage <laughs> Bird filler. Birdcage liner. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I looked, and uh, wouldn't you know it, <laughs> the attorney general is investigating me and my business again. Because oh we violated an RSA, which is exactly what the uh, uh, what the politician had done earlier this year. We were yeah, he, my client was just playing tit for tat because uh -huh. his name showed up on an anonymous website with these outrageous claims of things that he never did, and all he wanted to do was just give this politician a taste of her own medicine. Oh my! So, so you got kind of. Yep. Mode under. Yep. And and the thing is, is is that once people found out, yeah, it was me. My my numbers went through the roof. Oh yeah. So, anyway, um, I I am I am getting some some looks here from from some people around the house because we have a massive snowstorm coming, and there's a couple of things that I have to do to to prepare <laughs> for it. And I only got to half of the things that I, I that I would like to talk to you about. And I was wondering, um, since I have to cut it short, but we have so much other, um, how about we, ju we just put a pin in it, just call this okay. part one, and maybe same time next week, you and I can get together, we can, we can chat some more. Yeah, Cause there's a, yeah I would enjoy that very much. All right. So, and I have to get rock salt and, a, and, and, and milk and bread and all the other. <laughs> <laughs> French toast supplies must make the French toast. Exactly. Exactly. I want to thank you so much, Cass, for coming on to the show. And I want, before, before I disconnect with you, uh, give your website a plug real quick. How can people find you? 
reconstructinghistory.com. That's reconstructing as in reconstructing and history as in history.com. Um, we're everywhere on the internet. We also have a presence on amazon.com and etsy.com. If you, for some reason, can't get to reconstructinghistory.com or you stop typing too early. <laughs> And wherever fine patterns are sold. Exactly. There you go. And we're also going to have a, a handful of links to your website on the uh, on the show page. And Thank you. Is... And we'd, of course, always appreciate the likes and following on Facebook. That's great. Anyway, um, until next week, have a great holiday. Happy New Ooh. Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. And I'll talk to you again real soon. All right. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. Bye. Before I sign off for the last time in 2016, I want to thank all of you for a great 12 months. Special thanks to my good friends who helped me run the show, Walt Schnabel, Jim Loretta, Doug Plumbo, and Jason Cousineau. I also want to give a shout out to John, Larry, and Daisy over at the Diesel Powered Podcast, and Bonsart Bokel over at Radio Retro Future. Give their podcasts a listen, and don't forget to subscribe. Keep an ear open, and you'll hear me over there once in a while. As always, special thanks to my sons for keeping quiet enough for me to record for at least five minutes. Special thank you to my adopted sister Jenny for the constant words of encouragement and guidance through the past couple of months. And a special thanks to my wife Carol for her endless love and support. Once again, this has been the Fedora Chronicles Radio Show. You can support us by making a donation via paypal.me slash Fedora Chronicles. We thank you in advance for any support you have to offer. You're the reason why we do the show, and we appreciate your help in keeping the lights on. You can also support the show by buying our products at zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. We have countless of products with our logos on them, and we also take special requests. If you have an idea for a product, design, slogan, whatever, let us know. You can get in touch with us via the Fedora Chronicles Twitter and Facebook pages. That's a great way to suggest future topics, tell us what you like about the show, or just keep in touch. We'll even read some of your comments on the air. Finally, thank you once again for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. This is Eric Renderking Fisk signing off. Keep your chins up and your fedoras on. <laughs>